the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, and Brian Fromm is somewhere. Unfortunately, this show would be better with Brian Fromm, I imagine. Wow, we're off to a strong start there. <laughs> Voice I haven't introduced yet. My goodness. Hey, Josh, kill his mic. I don't even know who this guy is. He just snuck into the studio. I just came in. <laughs> Let anybody take me. Radio. <laughs> I want to knock Ian down a couple of notches. You can, uh, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com. All the previous shows are there. And uh, in Brian's absence this week, uh, we've been calling it the week of Ian's friends. And uh, I've just had so much fun learning from a number of different people from a number of different backgrounds. And uh, I am absolutely thrilled to have in the flesh in the studio today uh, the right reverend Dr. Chris Lash. <laughs> I have neither of those things except for Chris. I am Chris. Yeah, Chris. There we go. Chris Lash of my alma mater, Judson University. Yeah, yeah. Tell us a little bit about what you do there and uh, what your role encapsulates. Because it's a lot. You do a number of things that maybe people don't even realize you do. Yeah, I mean, I oversee three main areas. I oversee all of our chapel programming, a book, 80 speakers, or 80 chapel slots, and wow. then I oversee our global outreach trips, and so we have a partnerships all over the globe, and then I oversee our uh, student leadership for specifically university ministries. My title is Director of University Ministries, which means it's all, you know, just right in there, and I got to sort <laughs> it out, so it's good. No, I actually love it. I love working with college students. I, I freaking love the Judson community. I think they're the best. They're so much fun. Well, as someone to that, I mean, Judson was so formative for me, and mm. this is maybe a little uh, overbearing, but like, you know, I graduated 15 years ago. Yeah. I, I, lo- I have such an affinity for Judson and uh, what it has meant for me and what it continues to mean for me. So if I could just say, not to put you on the spot, I'm like really glad that you're there. Like the oh, fact that those you. students that don't even know me, this is where it feels <laughs> overreaching. I'm so glad they have a pastor like you, someone that's caring oh. for them and thinking intently about them and the ministry as a whole and the campus as a whole. And I, I, we were talking about this yesterday, how for a lot of churches in particular, the demographic that you work exclusively with tends to be the one that's Exclusive. like a head scratcher yeah. for churches. Like, how do we... How do we do this? Like, I'd love to it's know. It's the craziest thing. Yeah. I talk with church leaders all the time. Really yeah, I talk with issue? pastors about, they go, how can we engage mm. millennials? And I go, like, that's an old question now. Because now right. we're having a new generation come in who don't remember 9-11, right. who, don't, who weren't formed nearly as much by the 2008 stock market crash, yes. who just don't have the same kind of life experiences, even the millennials that you were, that you just grew accustomed to in your right. workplace. <laughs> so now it's Gen Z. And so yes. now it's all things Gen Z. But they're, they're phenomenal. They're incredible. They, Gen Z are the people who are going to get things done. Yep. Um, I have so, so, so much hope for the future of the church 
Um, not only because like Christ is on the throne, the spirit moves and the father directs and rules and reigns and all things, yeah, yeah. but also because I believe that he is raising up a generation mm. in Gen Z to uniquely meet the needs where my generation is and will fail. That's awesome. Um, and so I, I love Gen Z. I love my students. And I, I mean, I can gush about them forever. They, they can be frustrating <laughs> sometimes, but that's like ministry. Like I was frustrating, right. but they were some of the most growing moments when a person looked at me and said, hey, uh, like uh, some leader or professor or something like that said, hey, you, you need to grow here and let's help you navigate into future ministry and life and flourishing and all of that. And um, if I get to have a small portion of that kind of a role in someone's life and just tweak their trajectory just a little bit, and that's a huge success. That's incredible. Like that, that would be time well spent with all of these students. Well, and it, it seems like based on where I sit, you are accomplishing that. Oh, like thank some you. Really, probably in ways that you'll never actually fully know. So just mm-hmm. as uh, a friend, I, I think you're doing incredible work in the world. And and to kind of segue a little bit, you've been talking about college students, and I know that you recently went to a, uh, a conference in California called yeah. The Way yeah. that you have not stopped gushing about. Uh, and, yeah, and I had a blast. I'd love for people to know why that was so formative for you and like what are some of the what are some of the things from that conference that you think are really helpful? Oh, that's so good. Such a good question. So, Thanks. yeah. <laughs> this is going to be a fun. It's like we talked this about it a fun while. I know, this is good. <laughs> so, um, the I am fascinated by talking about, like, just giving some kind of meta-analysis of culture. So I found a speaker who I'm sure, like, people know about, and I'm the last guy to know about. But he's a guy (laughs) named John Mark Comer. Mm -hmm. He has a podcast called This Cultural Moment with a guy named Mark Sayers, who's a pastor from Australia. And they talk about, hey, what does this culture have? And they work in progressive cities. They are pastors in progressive cities. And so he kind of works and has his hand in this thing called The Way. And so I saw that they were doing a retreat following John Mark Comer for a while, following Mark Sayers, following some of these things, I was like, I don't care really what it is. I want to go there and talk to the guy. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. And so like I, <laughs> so I, I texted a buddy of mine and I go like, Hey man, um, if I bought so. you a ticket, would you come? And he goes, uh, to California? Yeah, like this is Chicago. Everything's dead. It's cold. Like, yeah, anything. So we got on a plane, and we went to California for this last weekend and hung out. It was a it was a college ministry, Vanguard University. Um, it was a college ministry that, like, partnered with some churches in the area to put on, as far as I understand it all, to put on a, how do we practice the way of Jesus? Mm. So what are some of the practical things that we can do to like walk in flourishing in life and all of that? And so what they were practicing this year, which is uh, they meet monthly, like twice per quarter, or I don't know what it is, but um, they meet relatively frequently and uh, they're talking about identity and calling. And mm. so those are two things that I get questions about all the time oh, from sure. students. Totally. And even I ask, like, what's my identity? What's my calling? How do I walk in that? Like, how do I grow in my understanding of calling and all those things? So we got to go up to the mountains in California for two days and have, like, silence and solitude and Sabbath. It was a digital detox. They took wow. our phones, and we just, like, hung out in the mountains, man. And it was it was so fun. Sounds terrible. And I thought it would be me and just a bunch of college students. Like, I thought it would be, like, the old fogey there. Yeah. But luckily, there were a whole ton of other old fogies. <laughs> okay, just there for was the only... record, how, how old are you? Just so our I listeners can it, it, it loses the joke. It loses the joke. So, so we did this really, um, like, I got to connect with other campus pastors, other universities, and there was only like a handful. It was only like 100 people at this conference. Got to connect with a handful, a couple campus pastors, some people who were just faithfully doing their work um, as Christians in their vocation, some people who was like a, a 
youth pastor who left his his uh, youth group to go somewhere else because of a toxic church situation. Like, and so there's all this hurt and these expectations brought into one room, and that we all sit there and we go like, we need to sit in solitude and then just celebrate the fact that Jesus cares about us, that He loves us, He delights in us, and we can just be still and know that I am God, kind of a thing. Yeah. And I hate solitude. I hate silence. Like I like well, this is radio. Like I'm talking, you know. And so like I was the kid who always got in trouble all the time yeah, in same, elementary. Same school yeah. i got i got in school suspension did you ever get you I was, were homeschooled, I was homeschooled yeah, so, yes all so, the time like, go outside yeah <laughs> being grounded Mine was like was. sit in this room for 12 hours Yeesh. or whatever school was so yeah it was terrible but um being able to sit with people from the all over the united states who were serious about pursuing jesus who wanted to pursue some of these practices yeah that um would lead us into life like it was so life-giving plus the sun and the green didn't hurt you know and like sure. like the fact that there were trees that had you know leaves on them i thought that was pretty fun so yeah, right. it was it was a blast i loved it yeah. well it sounds like too the more i meet with people the more i realize that the, the church historically at least in my very narrow limited experience uh has done pretty good in the sort of inspiration category but when it yeah. comes to the practical how do i actually live this out i know as someone who preaches regularly who writes sermons that that for me is always the biggest hurdle like i love right preaching exposition that I love. Like, man, let's dive into the, the meat of what's going on here, and here's what this Greek word totally. means. And then we're at the end, and our people are like, so... So what now? What do I do with that? And I'm like, oh, I don't pray, I guess. Yeah, and there's a rich tradition of church fathers and mothers who have said, it's not moralism to teach your people how to live these things, provided right. you give them a strong foundation of all grace and maturity yes. and the love of Christ. And I think some of the swinging pendulum was, we don't want to be in moralism. We want to follow this way of Jesus. And I'm seeing it swing in a really helpful way of going, yeah, let's give our people like tools about how to yes. hear from the Lord, how to read your Bible, how to do these things. Not because they're legalistic, like nooses around our neck or anything like that, but because they they, they lead us into joy and delight in worship. Outstanding. Okay, so that's what I want to talk about coming up next. Yeah, I love those, it. I'm here for it. Some of those tools, those resources, and a, uh, a lecture in particular that you heard that kind of was a light bulb moment yeah. for you while you were at this conference. That's yeah. coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Brian Fromm is MIA. But I think he's going to be back soon. Chris really liked that intro music, though. I Who do. I'm, like, so I'm here for it, man. <laughs> this is so good. That's I like, like that the intro. big surprise of today that you were really digging that vibe. It felt, yeah, I was like, all right, we're back. Like, this is it. Like, we got some energy going. This I would is good. not have guessed that you'd be in any way a fan of that, but I guess I have a lot to learn about you, which is hey, sweet. Man. That's sweet. That's good. We still have things to learn about each other. <laughs> I'm touched. I'm touched. That voice you're hearing is Chris Lash of Judson University, and uh, he's been talking a little bit about this conference that he was at in uh, California yeah. uh, and how that correlates to his work with uh, college students, Gen Z in particular, which is like a real head scratcher for a lot of local churches and local yeah. church leaders. But there was a, a lecture in particular that you that you heard that kind of like not only blew your mind, but also was like really affirming of some yeah. stuff that you kind of felt like you and I have both talked about sometimes when our convictions are reinforced by someone way smarter. Yeah, like, totally. See? You're like, they look think at so this. too. Look at this. Look at this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So at the conference, John Mark Comer was the pastor. He's the pastor of Bridgetown Church in Portland. Um, and uh, he made mention of this fact. And so I 
pulled him aside later. I said, hey, where did you get this fact from? Because hmm. uh, I want to investigate further. So he said something about sleep, which I'll get into in a second. But um, I went I went and found the lecture and then listened to the lecture not too long ago and wanted to like see, okay, what's the connection? Is there a connection to my audience? Hmm. What does that look like? And it was every single point I was like, this is gold. <laughs> this is college student gold. Like yes. I can just like hang it up and we're good to go. So <laughs> like this is what it was. It was um, it was a lecture by Lori Santos is her name. She's a Yale professor, uh, cognition professor, psychology. She is the head of a college, which means she like stays in residence with students. It's like what we oh, would okay. do with um, resident directors at Judson. Got and it. so um, what she noticed was that the culture at Yale, that all the students that she was coming to contact with were stressed, overworked, anxious. Um, they were distracted. They lacked a focus and they were overwhelmed. Wow. Um, and so they were dealing with stress, depression, and anxiety, and they were having some serious difficulties getting along in the world. And she was going, how do I connect the fact that these students are very privileged to be here and be part of this education, but their entire experience is not positive. Their entire experience is right. one of anxiety. And so she rattled off a couple statistics to because this is my audience, and this is why I found it really helpful. So I went to the source of the stats, and so I updated them for 2018. So in 2009, 40% or more students claimed that they had average stress. 30% were so stressed it's difficult to function. In 2018, fall 2018, that number is now 42. Mm. Over 40% of students felt hopeless. That wow. number is now 55%. Wow. About 50% feel overwhelming anxiety. And now it's 62%. 80% feel overwhelmed by all they have to do. And it's raised to 86%. And this is what's interesting and devastating. 6% seriously considered suicide. And now in the fall, the most recent data is saying it's 12%. So like... Wow. In less than a decade. Yeah. In less than a decade, it has grown in some of these categories exponentially, in some ways doubled, like contemplating suicide in 2009 versus 2018. That is astounding to me. So there's a mental health crisis. Yeah, no kidding. And so what she sought to do was plan a class that would address it. And the class was called Positive Psychology and the Good Life. Hmm. And so she thought that she'd have a class of about 30, like normal class size or whatever. She ended up having 1,200 students wow. take this course. Oh so word. a quarter of Yale students ended up taking this course. So and it was really interesting. Something, yeah, like... she's clearly hitting something yep. huge that students were like dialing into. So this course is split up into two things. It has positive psychology, like the theory, the science, the stats, all that stuff. And then it had practice. So what she would do is she would marry this element of, so this is what we're talking about. Now, here's how I want you to live it out. Brilliant. So she had one example where um, one of the points that she brought up was you are more happy if you live a, 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 a life filled with gratitude. So what I want you to do as an example is I want you to write a letter to someone and that has not been thanked before. And I want you to go read it to them in front of their face. And it might be awkward, whatever, but that will help you grow in gratitude and that will help you grow in happiness. And data shows that that one action can yield a positive happiness effect for up to a month. Really? Which is crazy. That yeah, is it's not just a, and that person, the person that you read it to will say, yeah, that 
that was one of the most meaningful experiences of my life. Wow. So she's trying to connect. How do we teach students how to be resilient to some of the language, but also how do they pursue happiness yeah. in this onslaught of work and all this stuff? As they're trying to figure out their own life, as they're like trying to navigate the digital ecosystem, how do they experience happiness? So she distilled it down to like 10 points. Hmm. So I'm only going to cover a couple of them. Yeah. So one of the points that she mentioned was um, it's possible to improve our well-being. This is super basic. It's just really basic, but she had to name it, put mm. some data behind it for students to go like, oh my gosh, everything is not innate in my genes. You mean, so she said 50% of your happiness, 50% of um, your, your is built or controlled, your mindset is, is in your genes. Mm. Um, 10% is based on circumstances and about 40% is based on our own behaviors. No so kidding. she goes, okay, so you can't control the circumstances. You can't control your genes. Let's talk about your behaviors. You can radically change your life based on what you do in your behaviors. So some of the really easy things that she said, so she had a couple like points of, of this. These are some of the insights from the research for what I was doing with students. But um, here's one of the really interesting ones. Recognize your mind is lying to you. Mm. So your mind forecasts something that either lines up to reality or does not line up to reality. And she goes, quite often, your mind is not lining up to reality. Well, I've been there for sure. So think about yeah. this in the Christian context. Hmm. We talk about this in terms of anxiety and worry, not clinical anxiety, but worry in the way that Matthew talks about it, or Jesus talks about it in the Gospel of Matthew. Do not be anxious about anything. Or, and, and Paul echoes that later on. So you have like these el- interesting elements of going, your mind might actually be deceiving you. And this Yale psychologist comes along and says, look, the data says your mind will deceive you by telling you, you need the nice car, you need the big salary, you need all that stuff. And she even mentioned as an interesting tidbit, the, the point where your happiness kind of teeters over the edge regarding salary where if you have this much, you're about happy, and if you get more, you start decreasing in happiness, is $75,000. No kidding. Seventy five k is about that threshold, is what she says. And so it's just, it, the whole thing is fascinating. And there's so many connections to theology and the Christian walk and Christian life and how I form my students. So here's how I see it connecting in really like significant ways. First, it's showing students you can change your circumstances. You can ad- adjust your mentality sometimes. That's not just positive psychology, but with the help of the Spirit. The second thing is, um, your mind does deceive you. So we don't have to believe all the voices that are being spoken to us or all the internal messages. Your mind might be playing tricks on you. Your mind might be forecasting poor uh, a poor future mm. for you that the Spirit and community can connect with. And so her one of her big points was, if you distill it down, she says, okay, join community, be generous, show gratefulness, Uh, practice bodily disciplines as far as like working out and stuff like that. And then be present in both pain and rejoicing. So don't disassociate, don't escape. um, And then don't be hurried. Mm. One of her points of how to achieve happiness in this life is don't be hurried. Wow. So she talks about using um, a, a time famine versus uh, I can't remember the other phrase, but time wealthy versus time famine. Mm. A lot of us live in time famine right. where we're like rushing from thing to thing to thing as opposed to being time wealthy mm. and talking about, no, I have this time that I can dedicate really intentionally and thoughtfully rather than always being hurried to the next thing. Which sort of harkens to like, uh, I think it was Dallas Willard who talks about ruthlessly eliminating hurry yep. from our life for hurry yes. is the great enemy of spiritual formation, which when I think of like the great enemy or yes. enemies, 
hurry is way down on the list for me, yeah. probably because I'm always hurried. Like, yeah, yeah. like I, I don't see that in the top 10 because like that's not that big of an issue. And, and just to be clear, this wasn't a quote-unquote like religious lecture nope. either, right? And you right. mentioned, uh, I think, that the lecture is available. People want to listen to it. It's available online. Aspen Ideas, the lecture is, and she teaches a course on Coursera. You can download or watch all 26 lectures for free. And so I'm going to start that pretty soon. I'm, and her, I'm and pretty what was her name again? Lori Santos. Lori Santos. So I highly encourage you find this lecture series, actually give it a listen because I think there's some really great nuggets, not just for millennials or Gen Z, people who work with college students, but like even just hearing you talk about it, realizing, man, those are a lot of areas that I struggle in personally. So I want to drill down a little a little more coming up next, talk yeah. about a theology of the body, something Absolutely. that in a lot of ways, I think uh, for, for Protestants in particular, feels like this ethereal, nebulous topic. Like how do we actually why is that even important? And uh, I think you have some really keen insight into that particular conversation. So that's coming up next with Chris Lash from Judson University on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, normally joined by Brian Fromm, but he's in sunny Florida. Wow. I mean, I hope it's sunny. It, that would be if a it's not sunny, that would be a major waste of that his life. <laughs> A bummer of a tree. He's with his yeah. family. That's what matters. Yeah, family is what family. matters. That is what matters. That's Who cares the, about the, the moral of the story today. Family matters. Also, a great sitcom from my childhood. Uh-huh. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. But we have in the studio right now my good buddy, Chris Lash from Judson University. And we've been talking about not only this conference that you went to uh, in California called The Way, but this uh, this lecture series on in particular, the ways that college students uh, also often disassociate their yeah. patterns and behavior with mental health. And, and I know that you've done some pretty extensive research and work mm-hmm. uh, on a theology of the body and yeah. something that we were kind of talking offline a bit about. Something that, in a lot of ways, the Catholic Church has done a, a, pretty, a pretty great job of formulating and articulating a theology of the body. But just a cursory Google search, you'll realize there's not a whole lot of not much. Protestant thought certainly not academic thought, on a healthy theology of the body. So so give us first maybe like an intro to what is that. Why does this even matter? What is it? Why does it matter? And then the, and then we'll take a deep dive. Yeah. I, so I, I've grown more passionate about talking about a theology of the body in recent times. Um, as I've done research going, there's not really much thinking and talking about this. Look, if Jesus came in the flesh, <laughs> right. we don't really talk much about what the flesh means. Not like, did he come in a different form as a human, but why does our humanity matter? Like, why does the very fact that I take on material, right. why do we care about that? And I feel it more and more because of our increased digitalization and then our fracturing of mind, body, spirit. Yeah. So Yes. I hear pastors talk about a lot of the spirit, talk about a lot about the mind, because like colleges talk about the mind. Right. You have athletes that talk about the body a lot. And I go, what does integration look like? And then this digital um, uh, uh, sphere where I can project any like disembodied notion of myself. I'm like simultaneously omnipresent, yet not present anywhere mm. except for here. So it's like this weird. So the the theology of the body I find really interesting because we just don't think about it very much. And right. it has a lot to do with um, like some historical roots of thinking that our mind is the only thing that matters and our spirit is the only thing that matters. And so I want to bring it back to, okay, what does our body do? And so as we play in spiritual formation, what bodily practices do we need to do or can we or are we invited to do hmm. in order to lead us into greater spiritual delight and love for the Lord and love for neighbor? So, And our body plays an integral role in that. Absolutely. I think what's interesting, too, is because you—so you cite 
the incarnation, which yeah. is like 101 for a Christ follower. And yet, mm-hmm. you know, familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. Sometimes it's such yeah. a familiar component to the story yeah. that we're like, well, yeah, he took on flesh, but does that really matter? And what, you know, we've said a couple of times is matter matters. Yep. And we yep. tend to head really sometimes in one of two directions, either like only give the flesh whatever it wants at all times, or, yep. you know, we have these kind of traces of like Gnostic dualism where it's like anything that your physical body wants is is evil and must be put to death. And I think when we live in these two extremes, I think that's all the more reason that we need a healthy theology of the body. So how, how do we do that? What Start us off. Uh, either engaging in a conversation maybe that we've never had yeah. or give, give us some give us some coaching, some pastoral wisdom for how, how do we engage with this topic well. Yeah, I love it. And so so in Genesis, we see that God creates Adam and Eve and he forms yeah. Adam, right, and animates him. And so right away we see that there's an element where the body is good, God creates the body. Yes. Um, also, the body's limited. Like, we have a limits. We have limits to our body. We can't, like, I can't project myself outside of myself. Like, there's actual limits. Like, I'm, I don't work out very well, and so I have very <laughs> natural limits in their way. Like, I just have limits in my body. You're I can't bound. be everywhere. Yeah, yeah I'm bound. Yeah. Um, and then we're also social. He created Adam and Eve together to be one. So you have some marriage theology there, but also just the fact that they were supposed to talk and connect and be friends yes. and all of that. Yes. And then you see that they're supposed to be present. Like they, in their body, not only are they limited, but they're also present in the moment. And so as I've been thinking about how do we think about, uh, how do we think about the body? How do we work some of this stuff out? I've been looking at the incarnation of Jesus. So the fact that Jesus took on human flesh as as a, a really interesting uh, uh, touch points for what we can talk about when we're thinking about the theology of the body, which is even kind of a funny sentence, but (laughs) the incarnation shows the body is vital. Jesus did not take some disembodied form. He didn't just come as an angel and like that was enough. The body is actually vital to our humanity. It's vital to our being. Um, His death, uh, the body can be broken. The body is broken. The very fact that we can get hurt, we bleed, like these kinds of things are effects of the fall. Like this is an effect of the fact that we live in a fallen world and pain and difficulty and strife. Those are parts of our world. And then in Jesus's burial, which is interesting, we see the body is dignified. Um, you see that in the burial, um, the people who go to bury him, the, the women who like dress him up, they, they do the ceremonial burials. They, they dignify him within their culture. And um, the body matters, even if we don't associate a spirit with it, right? Oh, like even good. if we go, the spirit leaves, okay, let's the soul leaves the body, it, but the body still has some kind of dignity and worth that, that values. So when Christ returns, right? So when the spirit resurrects Christ, we see that the body can be made new. Hmm. And so vital, uh, broken, dignified, and new, this body matters. Oh, wow. And which connects even to what I was talking about, Lori Santos last segment, right? Um, sleep. Hmm. Like the fact that you give your body sleep and exercise. I don't. You absolutely need to. <laughs> Ian, you need to. No, okay, all right. No. I, mean, I feel so the convicted. Average, you know, the, <laughs> the average high schooler sleeps like four or less hours per night. Jeez. So there was a study done where um, they tracked high schoolers and um, they had a, a sleep restriction, then a sleep excess, which they were like seven or more hours. And um, the sleep restricted students who were four hours or less for a week were diagnosed with clinical depression. Their depressive levels were at clinically wait, 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 low wait. Okay, levels. So four or less for seven days straight. Yeah. 
100% of those students or that's the vast what majority? she said yeah no kidding okay yeah. sorry which is which is absolutely crazy yeah and then okay so then let's also put so sleep matters so sleep matters put that in a box over there and also we say exercise matters 30 minutes of exercise is equivalent to zoloft wow it raises your levels and it raises your happiness levels for full 24 hours that's, that's serotonin that's dopamine yeah. that's all of that wow. i don't know the brain stuff i just know i've read a thing <laughs> i'm just and rattling so, off no. latin sounding words <laughs> yes. i don't know <laughs> amygdala yeah i don't know <laughs> Cortisol? I don't know. Like, <laughs> it's cortisone. No, no, yeah, that's no. Uh, Calzone. antiseptic. <laughs> that's better. Anyway, so um, what's interesting to me is we don't often treat our bodies as if they matter. Yeah, we treat our bodies right. as if we they are a prison. Hmm. Like, so they're housing this spirit, soul, connection, this mind. If I could only trans, mm. if I could only get outside my body, we treat them as a machine. Yeah. Where like, okay, I know I do. That's my, that's my, m- like what I typically do is I treat my body like a machine. I go, I just need to intake food so that I can work harder, so that I can push further, so I can like read more, preach more, whatever. Like it happens all the time. Which is wrapped with up me. in some identity stuff too, oh, I'm sure, totally. right? Like I, oh my gosh. I, am, I am the sum of what I can do. Yes, right? absolutely. Which leads to some unhelpful practices as it pertains to your body, right? Right. And so when we read, um, uh, uh, whether it's like Ephesians 6, like put on the armor of God, there's very bodily metaphors. Mm. When we read that, uh, um, like I, I was pulling up some scripture passages. So like Hebrews 12, when they talk about us being adopted, when they talk about running the race, not only are these bodily metaphors designed for us to understand, yes. but they're identity things that allow us to... Um, the, the identity allows us to use our bodies, to steward our bodies in different ways so that we can glorify God, love our neighbor, and care for ourselves because God cares about the fact that we eat junk food or we yes. eat well and be, because it's all wrapped up in living this Christian life. So it's thinking more holistically with our bodies. How do we do this? What does this look like? And uh, how can we serve Jesus with our bodies? Okay, I think that's so good. And one of the things that I often hear kind of misquoted is when Paul talks about desires of the flesh, Mm. we assume that they're talking about body. And as best I can tell, he's really talking more about like disordered desires, right? That's that's, that's what he's addressing. So, So like one of the things that I think in talking about disordered desires, the very conversation about a theology of the body applies. But another thing that I think often is a manifestation is... Uh, lament or our lack thereof, mm. right? Where mm. our desire, our inclination to always jump to victory, to celebration. Yeah. And you've had some pretty personal experiences with this idea of lament that I yeah. uh, I want to talk about coming up next. We have Chris Lash from Judson University in the it, studio baby. here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, right, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with normally Brian Fromm. But he's abandoned me. He's swimming or surfing or parasailing or something. He's been sending me photos every 30 seconds. In fact, of... this music feels appropriate for, like, Florida. <laughs> yeah, it's this like feels way more Florida than crew. Chicago. <laughs> I got, like, a tiki thing, you know? That's good. I wish people could see you <laughs> dancing and grooving right now. I love that this isn't video. Oh, uh, man, I wish, I, wish about... I had been on the ball there. <laughs> you can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. But that other voice you're hearing... Is Chris Lash from Judson University. Hey, everyone. And we've been talking about a whole lot of things, but I, I teed it up last segment, though. One of the things that I'm really passionate about that I think the church, the big C church, particularly in the West, particularly in the last 200 years or so, has really, really struggled with this idea of grief and lament, particularly as it pertains to our gathered spaces. Yeah. 
it's not that we, I mean, I think people still grieve and lament as much as they ever have, but when it comes to like, quote unquote, when we do church or when we're the gathered ecclesia. Well, do it in when, isolation. Yeah, it, right. Exactly. Exactly. It only feels like loneliness. And so oh. lament puts this, I know you had Dr. Anderson not too long ago talking about lament and all this stuff. So Brilliant. I'm going to, I'm going yes. to, I'm going to tread on a well trod path and, uh, uh, he's, well, yeah, I used trod <laughs> twice. So, um, anyway, yeah. Lament is this really interesting thing where it gives voice to something. It names something really specific. Hmm. And it gives voice to hurt and pain, and it trusts that the Lord cares. And so even the angriest, most non-Christian-sounding lament, the, like like the cursing at God, is still an act of trust that which he is in hears our holy and he writ, cares. Right? Yes, like which is in our holy writ. Yes. Yeah, it's like these incredible examples of the Psalms or Lamentations or something like that, where it's... God, I, you've abandoned me. I don't know where you are. How do I move forward? Totally. And... They get no response. Mm-hmm. But then you see it also happening as corporate laments. So it's not this only this individualistic thing where it's like you and your journal at a coffee shop and writing out these <laughs> angsty prayers, you know, but but it's this element where um, you can gather with the saints and you can pray these prayers that don't feel spiritual, quote unquote, but are these deeply spiritual prayers because they trust that the Lord is listening, that he cares, and they demand a response. Yes. Well, the very fact that we have an entire book called Lamentations, you have Jeremiah who says things that we would gasp at. He says things like, you know, I wish I'd never been born. Yeah. Right? You know, when when a third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament, and yet it's so easy for us to jump right to... This song better be in a major key. It's all about victory and throne yep. and white horse. And we I want think, the songs that'll let them raise their hands. Which, and, as pastors, I totally get that. Yeah. Sometimes lament and grief. You want to lead them, oh, lead right. them somewhere and yes. leave them with something. We want you to have joy in the Lord. Yes. But sometimes you can only find joy in the Lord when you face your pain yep. head on and lament forces you to do that. It says, you cannot, you will not look away, God. Yes, right. God, you cannot look away from my pain. And, and that is an incredibly powerful powerful posture to take. And so we've done lament a couple times at Judson. Mm-hmm. Um, we did a, a lament service lamenting racial injustice, which was a really powerful service. Like I was crying at the end. I'm not a crier, but like I'm sitting there going, I'm listening to these stories of people. I go like, what would like, this is insane. How can this go on? So I'm doing my own personal lament in this corporate lament for racial injustice. And so not too long ago, we did a lament, um, service specifically lamenting power abuse Mm. and so that sounds really strange and whatever but we've had two significant churches where the leaders have experienced a major moral failing that came to light yeah right it was buried for quite a while and it came to light and my students are coming up to me going like i go to this church i go to this church what do i do now these are my people i had staff and faculty coming up to me going like what do i do with the fact and so i go I think the biblical way for us to process some of this grief is to lament as a community. We were broken in community. We heal in community. I think some of this has to happen individualistically, absolutely, but we heal as a community. And so I ended up writing out, I ended up like, I'm like this little Baptist boy and I'm calling on my Anglican <laughs> friends. Yes. And I'm like, Anglican brother, can you send me some prayers, my man? And the, he's like, the look, the, the, the history of the church has got you. And I totally. go, wow, I need help. Anglicans so it's are so, so much better at this than we are, by the way. <laughs> they haven't written out. They, they have... They've thought through this, so it's not like they're having to reinvent the wheel every yes. time. And so I, I wrote a prayer that um, 
I, I would like to share. And so yeah. this service was divided up into four main avenues. Um, we had an address. So it's it's patterned after what a typical lament looks like. Not just a lament service, but a, a, what a lament. When you open your Bible, what the lament looks like. It moved as an address. So we addressed the Lord. We implored him to hear and listen to us. There was a complaint. So we named specifically what our complaint was. Mm. And then we had a petition, like, Lord, you need to respond. You need to move. You need to change the situation. You need to send churches to the Elgin area. You mm. need to send church. Like, so we got into it. And then um, we had assurance. So the fact that the Lord hears us. And for the insur- assurance part, we did, uh, like, give me Jesus, but it was in a minor key. Oh, that's And good. so it was this, like, haunting in the midst of this. It was kind of like an it is well type situation where in the midst of all of this, Give me Jesus. Would you would you walk us through those categories again real quickly? What were the categories that you walked through? Assurance, complaint, petition. No, I, I address, address, address. <laughs> address, complaint, petition, and assurance. Got it. That's yeah. excellent. So that and was the basic structure. That, that you, was the basic structure. Okay. And so we had corporate prayers for each one. We had a couple songs scattered here and there and some scripture readings. But here's one, a corporate prayer of confession. So this was part of the service where I wanted us to personally confess where we went wrong. And so I am going to just read parts of, I'll read parts of this. And um, some of this was give and take, like the leader and then everyone reading back and forth. But this is radio, so you guys can't see the text on the screen. (laughs) Um, So it says, have mercy on us, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out our transgressions. Wash away all our iniquity and cleanse us from our sin. For we know our transgressions and our sin is always before us. You charge us to love our neighbor, but we have sought the security of our tribe. You are glorified in self-giving love, but we have flaunted self-serving influence. You speak the truth in love, but we dismissed. You unite, but we wounded brother and sister. You expose darkness, but we were silent. You bring freedom, but we submitted to fear. So create in us a pure heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Do not cast us from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and grant us a willing spirit to sustain us. That's fantastic. Amen. So how, what was the response to this then? Like I'm, I'm being moved just because I know you and I have such an affinity and appreciation for your heart and your leadership. I know Judson. These are students in a community that has meant so much to me that I, I'm just, I'm predisposed to want to care for. I'm, I'm curious what it was like in the room there. Like as you're praying these prayers of lament, yeah. you're owning uh, and entering into this grief. What was the response? Well, afterwards, it was frustration because students wanted to be, more students wanted to be a part of it, but they were prevented because of some practice times and stuff Uh, like that. But in the room, there was this reverence of, this is how we process some of our grief. This is how we process some of these things and how we can disconnect Harvest or Willow Hurt from like strange connections to God as father or God as the one who cares for our souls. That's right. And so it's being able to restore this reality that God loves, sees, cares, and protects us, even though we walked through this horrifically devastating season. Yeah, no kidding. Man, that is so good. Brother Chris Lash from Judson University, I am so grateful for you just as a friend, as a pastor, as a leader. Thank you for coming into the studio today, sharing with us some of your wisdom. Oh, it was please, such a pleasure. Please come back sometime. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. This has been The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.
It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Brian Fromm is in sunny Florida without us. So feel free to shame him when he gets back. Or maybe, hopefully, he'll bring some sun actually with him. But you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. But all week long, we've been having guests in the flesh, in the studio here, talking about their life, their ministry, their experiences. And uh, I'm so excited to have in the studio Steve Coble, teaching pastor of Park Community Church. You can learn more at parkcommunity.church. Steve, welcome to the show, man. Man, thanks. I'm glad to be here, Ian. So you're a teaching pastor, and I'm a teaching pastor. I have a feeling we're going to have some things to talk about today. We're like the same person. <laughs> Practically, you can hear it even in the voice, right? <laughs> yeah. One of the same. I'd love to know, just to start, what's some of your story? Like, how did you end up in ministry? Was that always the dream? Did you sort of fall backwards into it? Why Chicago? Why Park? Like, just give us some background and context. Yeah, to you. that's a loaded question on my end <laughs> and my story. Man, I was raised nominally Catholic, okay. so literally what I do, I did not have a category for when I was right, right, the family point. that I was born into. And so, um, man, I became a follower of Christ through college ministry, impact uh, movement, which is sort of the subset of uh, crew ministry, yes. African-American-focused uh, college ministry. And one of my friends who also, also grew up nominally Catholic uh, was like, man, you know, all that Jesus stuff that we like talked about, like when we were kids in Catholic school and stuff like that. He was like, what if that stuff actually impacted reality? This is a friend of yours? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And so uh, he invited me to the conference, became a follower of Christ there. And quickly after that, since the call to prepare for vocational ministry, uh, didn't really know what that looked like. Like <laughs> right. I said, like had no family members, like no uncle to call, no grandfather, no it was just sort of like, where do you, what, how do you do this, right? <laughs> and honestly, add on to all of that, uh, I'm ethnically biracial. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the things that I, our frustrations are like kind of like uh, lines in the sand that I, I could not figure out how to do or how to, I guess, step into is that I felt like I either had to choose black church or I had to choose white church. Oh, interesting. And I was like, yeah, but this is christianity so like why is that a thing why do i have to choose yeah and um and so i you know i kind of uh sort of in the process of figuring all of those things out still felt uniquely called to prepare for vocational ministry and just said lord you're going to be the one who directs that uh you're going to be the one who uh you know places me in, in a specific congregation or whatever and so over the course of time i just started to realize like the lord was using like my multi-ethnic background to cross bridges with people. And so in the process of that, um, man, wasn't a great student in school. And the guy who was discipling me at the time was like, yo, you ever thought about going to Bible college? And I was like, that exists? I didn't know that was a (laughs) thing. thing. (laughs) Yeah. And so, man, it was the first time in my life that I was like just really, really excited about a particular thing. And so I said, man, if I learned the Bible, I guess I would learn what I'm supposed to do with my life. Hmm. And so did that man felt called to ministry never was like a super. I remember taking oral communication in junior college when I was playing baseball and 
thinking like I hate to speak in front of people. Like this is the really? worst thing ever. And here you are on a radio um, show. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Um and so man, I I just, you know, people would continue to affirm. I would get up and and try and try and in community people would affirm, "Man, we we really think that uh God has gifted you in this. God has uh entrusted you with a certain gift that you you have to uh you have to use for uh for his body." And so uh, I ended up uh, pursuing that. And then eventually same friend who was sharing his faith with me was like, yo, I'm moving to Memphis, Tennessee. And you need you got to come. You got to come with me. And as any good Bible college does, they say, you got to go to seminary. You got to go to seminary. You got to go to seminary. Right. And so uh, I was traveling back and forth to Southern Seminary. I'm, I'm from Indianapolis, so I'm driving. It's like a two hour trek south okay. to Louisville to get to Southern Seminary. And man, so. He's calling me. I'm running out of money. He's like, yo, you know how we always wanted to do multi-ethnic ministry. Like, I'm here doing it. Like, uh, this is like, you got to come visit. So the church uh, is called Fellowship Memphis. And at the time, Brian Loritz was the lead pastor there. And for uh, people who heard, I'm guessing Crawford Loritz may come on the show sometime Uh or they may hear him preach. But that's his son. And so they wanted to start a church in a place that was known historically to be a very segregated place and show how the gospel brings different people together. Wow. Uh, that sort of Ephesians 2 dividing wall of hostility has been torn down, created yes. in himself one new man. And so I went, man, came into a Sunday worship gathering and saw like God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And I was like, this is the vision that God gave me for for ministry. Like, this is the place for me. Like, wow. this is what I want to duplicate this wherever I, I go. Whatever this is, this yeah, is it. As I got to do it. Mm-hmm. And so... Man, um, I I moved to Memphis, spent a couple of more years in seminary there, got trained up by a guy named John Bryson and uh, Brian Loritz and Ricky Jenkins there. And man, in the process of all of that, um, Brian was really like, man, I think that you have some academic skills that you need to further develop and I met Charlie Dates, who's a pastor here yes, on the yes. South Side. Love Charlie Dates. And so I was literally Charlie Dates' chauffeur one weekend. No kidding. So I just like pick him up and take him wherever he needs to go in my 1997 Buick Park Avenue in luxurious style. And and yeah, man, we just got to talking and uh, some of the interest that he had to write his dissertation, which he was writing uh, his dissertation up at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Right. And he was like, man we got some of the same interests and in research. You've got to meet my advisor. So, uh, man, that's, he introduces me to Doug Sweeney up Come at on. Trinity. And, uh, man, I start the PhD program and, uh, man, it did a lot, uh, for me in terms of the, the academic rigor of like what week to week pastoral ministry is yes. and stuff like that. And I didn't know that. I didn't, I didn't really know what that looked like to sit your butt down at a desk and work it out until that thing right, is ready. Right. And um and and even like the books that we read and different things. About a year and a half into that, I was like, yo, all of my colleagues, all they want to do is read and write. And I'm like, man, I, I really kind of want to be with people. I want to mm-hmm. like hang out. I want to invest in people's lives. I want to be a, a, an intricate part of the local church. So uh, in the process of that, uh, I started preaching at a church in Oak Park and then eventually came on staff at uh, at Park Community Church. So you you have this sort of dual interest then of both being like a like an academic but also a practitioner which often is sort of the divide, right? You sometimes the frustration is practitioners could benefit from like 
some some learning, yeah. some education, but often like yeah. you were identifying, sometimes those in the education realm can be so closed off that they're they're missing like the dirt under their nails moment. Like, oh, you got to like live some life with people. And you you kind of seem to have a, a balance of those things. I think it was Carl Bart said, right? The best preachers have a newspaper in one hand and a Bible yeah, in the yeah. other, right? Like you you have this interest of doing both, which I find so fascinating. Man, it, it wasn't something that I asked for. And mm-hmm. I, I do. The, the strange thing is that you always feel like you're no you're not in one place doing anything really well. Yeah, yes, you're I totally doing get that. bad at both things, <laughs> and uh, and yet you're just trying to keep it together. Yep, totally. And for whatever reason, man, um, you know that just happened to be the way that God wired me. And I hope to finish the PhD in the future. Uh, Greg Waybright, who used to be the president of Trinity, he's yes. uh, pastor in Pasadena, California. He is just like the epitome of somebody who is a pastor and a scholar. Yes, and yes. so. I got to see that example from him and another a couple of friends of mine. Jeremy Treat is another guy who's out in Los Angeles who was here at Wheaton doing a PhD, yep. um, who are pastors and academics, and they just modeled that for me and and at least showed me that there's a way to do this. Totally. All right. All right. So I have so many questions coming up next. I want to talk about preaching and homiletics, but I also want to talk about multi ethnic church racial reconciliation. You know, particularly in Chicago, a city that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, I would love to pick your brain about that with uh, Steve Coble here from Park Community Church. Coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Brian Fromm is in Cuba or Russia. I don't don't know where he's at. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. But I'm thrilled to have in the studio Pastor Steve Coble, teaching pastor of Park Community Church. You can learn more at parkcommunity.church. And uh, you and I are actually both teaching pastors, which is a pretty unique job yeah. as it you know pertains to the local church thing. Yeah. And I've told people one of the great ironies of my life is getting paid to do what I used to get grounded for doing, you know, which is teach. But yeah. uh, you you are a gifted communicator and one who's not only just good at it, because sometimes people can be good at things but they haven't really taken like an interest in that thing. Uh, you, you're like a lover of preaching and homiletics and how do you like walk us through a little bit, not only of, of your journey of discovering that love, but like, how do you, how do you teach your transformation? How do you, how do you connect with an audience? How do you think mm-hmm. through like what you were saying, just mm-hmm. the nuts and bolts sitting down at a desk with a blank word doc, like, all right, God, what, yeah. what do you have for our people at this place in time? What, what is that like? Man, that is such a rich uh, question with so many layers and so many things, places I could go. Man, I, like I said earlier, there is this uh, uniqueness to my story in that I'm I'm biracial. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I think many of us can identify when the first time we heard Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, on the television or on the radio, yes. and you just said, what is he doing with words that's so incredible, right? Right. And like, I, I just remember as a little kid thinking that that's the most impressive thing that I've ever seen a person do was to move people with words. And so I had no clue that I would even be any good at it. Right. I just knew that I thought that was really cool. So when I became a follower of Christ and started going to church uh, in Indianapolis, there is this incredible preacher named Jeffrey Johnson in Indianapolis, Mm. uh, who's sort of, uh, and he's just the, the biggest name, the best preacher in all of Indianapolis and uh, just an incredible communicator. And so I would just go listen to him 
uh, week in and week out and didn't realize he was like one of the best preachers I you oh, know really? in, like that exists. You weren't going like to study him specifically. No. Like, I just love what he's doing. No, I just love what he was doing. I felt cared for in his preaching. Um, I felt like he really exalted Christ and yet made it really like approachable and accessible, yeah. made the scriptures really accessible. And so, man, I would just have him in the background of my mind. And then he exposed uh, me to uh, E.K. Bailey's expository preaching conference Uh in Dallas, Texas. And so within that, you get introduced to sort of the great hall of African-American preachers. And the sad thing is that many uh, classes or many uh, evangelical schools uh, that are training pastors don't get exposed to who these people are. Like at all. At in all. In some cases, right? Yeah, exactly. So, which is one of the reasons why I think Charlie Dates and Pastor Charlie Dates and I were interested in, in stepping into the research side of that. And so, get exposed to all these incredible communicators, and you're just paying attention to how they stay rooted in the text, but then how they communicate with words in the, in the way that King did and paint pictures for people and, and uh, sort of communicate in such a way that they pull them into a space of the imagination uh, while still staying tied to a passage of scripture. Right. And so I got to hear all of those different things while I'm in school. I'm, you know, listening to John MacArthur and I'm listening to uh, Chuck Swindoll and people like that. And those are kind of the people that I got exposed to in school. And so I've just got this mashup of those two different worlds uh, and sort of figuring out how to do exposition yes. while holding on to these two cultures at the same time, <laughs> right? right? right. Um, and then I get introduced to Brian Loritz. Mm. And then he put language to what was just intuitive that I had no words for. Mm. And so he would uh, help me think through how to communicate to different audiences. And so one of the things that I realized in talking with him that African-American preaching did so well at was the use of story. And uh, man, Joel Gregory is uh, the, I believe he's the director of the preaching department at Truett Seminary, but he said at an E.K. Bailey conference that I was in uh, at a seminar once, he said that everybody uh, will remember the story or the illustrations that you utilized through your message and be able to piece back together the sermon right. because they live their lives within a story. Yes. So totally. story is their world mm-hmm. in, in so many words. And so that just stuck with me. And so Brian used to say, man, you've got to spend, uh, you know, most pastors spend an incredible amount of time figuring out what the text says and not trying to figure out how to communicate the text. Ugh. And so, man, and he would just say, man, you got to look through the world through sermonic lenses. And so I began to utilize that along with this African-American uh, preaching tradition and man, just love listening to African-American preaching. So if, if there ever was like a goat of the African-American <laughs> preaching tradition, I would want to go hear them. Hmm. Um, and then I would, you know, run back to Tim Keller and I want to hear what Tim Keller has to say about this thing. And sort of in the process of putting that together, um, man, Loritz used to tell us this Aristotle's rhetorical triangle. I'm going to get nerdy on you for one, just do. a second. Bring it. Uh, logos, pathos, and ethos are these three elements of that he would call the best communicators sort of utilize all three of these things. So logos is the content portion of the message. And in evangelical schools, uh, man, you get taught really good how to preach through logos. One uh, angle of the triangle. Yeah, though, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then ethos is like character or believability, uh, that, that uh, there's some authenticity to what you're saying. Um, and then um, pathos is passion. And so if you can bridge these three things together, 
then man, you can you essentially will encapsulate communicating to the whole person. Yes, right. Because we're more than just our mind. That's right. Uh, you know what I mean? And we live our lives within a story and we have a heart and we have emotions and feelings and an imagination. Yes. And the thing about that is is that Jesus utilized story all the time Constantly. throughout his communication. Yep. So when he's uh when he's saying I am the true vine uh, you know, or he's saying, you know, when you uh, if you have the faith the size of a grain of a mustard seed, you can say right. to this mountain, move from here to there. He's looking back at a mountain. Uh huh. Right. Like there's word pictures going on all the time. Planks in Jesus's coming out ministry. of eyes yeah, and candles yeah. going through needles and exactly. Which I don't think we talk enough about actually, because I remember early on I had a, a mentor of mine come and, and see me preach, and I was re- I was really excited. You know, my mentor was there, and yeah. I'd done all this work in preparation, and afterwards he sort of crossed his arms and he said, "It's clear that you put in a lot of work." But if all you're going to do is give them commentary, just buy them all a commentary. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Preaching is different than yeah. commentary. And he kind of exposed in me, he's like, the reason that you kind of gave them the etymology of all these words wasn't because it moved the sermon along. It's because you wanted them to know how smart you were. Yeah. So he like started to kind of peel back some of mm. my own tendencies yeah. that actually weren't benefiting the community at all. It became more about like, look at me and how yeah. good I am at this thing. And I think... I don't know. Do you have this experience where you like listen back to sermons from 10, 15 years ago and you think, oh, I can't believe anybody had to sit <laughs> through that. And if so, like what, how has your preaching changed or morphed over the years since yeah, you started? Man, that is, yeah, I think anytime you, you begin preaching, you have this desire for people to think that you're good. You know what I mean? And so you put all the work into certain specifics, um, but you maybe you haven't lived a, enough life to know right. how to inform other than just how the Bible articulates how to live life, right? Yes, yes. And uh, I, I think that you begin to understand, like, the details of how the Scripture actually walks through the, the different roads and uh, different paths of life. Yep. And so, man, I think that um, this year has been just dramatically changed my preaching. And I, I think that Tim Keller has always had like a tremendous influence on the way that I understand the Bible hmm. um, in terms of all the scripture pointing to Christ and how that fits and in, in stuff like that. But I think in a lot of Christian spaces, we talk a lot about grace, but we don't actually know what it is. Yes, right. You kind of talk around it a little yeah. bit, right? And, and so we, we get it for the entry point into getting into the Christian faith, but we don't understand it for the part of actually growing in our Christian right, faith. Right, right. Oh, man, I love that. I'm looking forward to learning a little bit more about that and your passion for preaching. Coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Brian Fromm is normally here, but he is in Florida right now. But we've been talking with Pastor Steve Coble of Park Community Church. You can learn more at parkcommunity.church. And you've been sharing passionately, which I really appreciate, your heart for teaching and preaching and homiletics and why that's so important, I think, for the local church to do well. Would you just tell us a little bit more about that? Man, I started to really wrestle with this idea of um, what is what does the Apostle Paul mean when he says, Man, I'm striving to not have any righteousness of my own, yeah. uh, but to have this foreign righteousness that is Christ's righteousness Come on. Um, and to be found in him, yes. right? Uh, and he receives that by faith alone. And and even Jesus is, we're preaching through the I am statements of Jesus and John right now. And I, I keep thinking like Jesus is saying over and over and over again that all of the stuff that was you know, John five, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that point to me. Yes. Um, it's almost like this 
pointing to grace mm. and grace being this foreign idea for the human experience. Absolutely. Because so many of our relationships are transactional, right? Yep. Our, your ability to, you know, for AM 1160 to get to get more money is based on how many how many people are listening in. Sure. And, you know, the way that you got into that school and that program and got that promotion and at that company mm-hmm. is all based on performance. Mm. And the the thing about grace is that it's completely not based on performance at all. It's, right. It, and, and, and it can't be. Yes. And so, um, Matt, that didn't I understood that mentally, but I didn't understand that at a soul level. Mm. So. In the process of, of this year, man, um, my grandfather, who was like my dad, passed away uh, in March of oh, 2018. Sorry, my dad's brother passed away in the summer of uh, 18, and my mom had a stroke in December. Jeez, I'm so sorry. And man. so I'm like, yeah, man, it's it's been a, a interesting year, just ups and downs, touch and go in a lot of different ways. And for whatever reason, over the course of time, like my outlet for that has been to take that pain and the scriptures together yeah and i've got to communicate this to to people and so um preaching was kind of like an outlet in that way Mm. and so in the process of me uh experiencing some things that i was experiencing uh with some of this pain and loss i started going to to a counselor Mm. and so this counselor recommended a book to me called the soul of shame and the the person who wrote the book is a medical doctor, so he understands the anatomy of the brain, and he, he's also a counselor. So he's uh, working with people who are processing different emotions mm. and different traumatic experiences, and uh, he he says that essentially the part of your brain that processes shame does not acknowledge the emotion of shame until it already has arrived. So. Oh. You can readily identify anger or you can readily identify sadness pretty quickly yep. uh, in your mind. Yep. But shame just appears. Yes. And so he, he points back to the scriptures in Genesis 2.25. Adam and Eve, uh, after God had created uh, Eve, the Bible ends chapter 2 saying, and they were naked and yep. they had no shame yes. or they felt no shame. Right. And so his argument is that shame literally enters into the world post the fall. Wow. And so. Man, I'm start, I'm wrestling with this, and I'm, I'm realizing that like the shame that I feel for certain things, or lack of performance, or lack of achievement in certain places, or what if people knew that about me, and mm-hmm. and this, that, and the other. As I'm processing this pain, and I'm preaching through Galatians at the same time. Man, so Paul gets to I get to Galatians three and three, and Paul says, "You foolish Galatians, <laughs> you began by the Spirit." Like you, you entered into this thing by the spirit and now you're attempting to be perfected by the flesh. Right, right. He's like, how dumb is that? Right. <laughs> and, 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 and if you know Galatians at all, like essentially what's going on is that these people have come in and said, man, religious performance is the way to uh, really get in right with Jesus, right? To really get in right with God, you got to be circumcised. You got to uh, follow the law of Moses still, all of those different things. And Paul is like, yo, that is not the way that you got saved. So why are you going to try and perfect yourself in that way? And I think in a lot of Christian spaces, because grace is such a foreign concept, Mm. we start with grace and then our sanctification and pursuit of holiness really is based on a works-based righteousness. And I think what the enemy does is uses shame as a counterfeit Holy Spirit to say, 
hey man, you're not doing good enough. Like, can't, I can't believe like you did that again. Yep. Like really? Like, yes. and you call yourself a, a follower of Christ? Right, right. And then slowly but surely, while you're looking at the overt evils over here, you know, I think of C.S. Lewis's Screw Tape Letters uh, book. Like Satan is shifting you over subtly and, and ever so slightly until you get into a workspace righteousness. That's right. And now you got your eyes focused on you and your sin and the stuff that you're dealing with. Come on. And you're not able to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. Totally. So the focus becomes you instead of others, even though Christianity is calling us up to look and care for uh, others. Yep. And we get so consumed with our own individual sin and miss the fact that the only way that we ever were acceptable to God yeah. was based on faith through the gracious gift that he provided in his son. Totally. It was totally. strictly by uh, by grace, That's man. That's so good, man. And and continually, like when in John 15, when Jesus says, abide in me and I in you and you will bear much fruit. And this union with Christ's language that shows up around the rest of the New Testament, man, I, I think that He's saying, like, rehearse grace over your soul. Yep. Re- you ha- and you have to continually do it. I-, I was preaching, I'm the bread of life. And Jesus says, eat my, eat my flesh and drink my blood and you will uh, 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 remain in me yep. if you do those things. Yes, right. Yes, right. And I'm thinking to myself, like, Jesus, Jesus, is, Jesus is literally saying, like, when we take communion, like, I, the passage specifically doesn't ha- isn't addressing communion, uh, but, like, you can't help but make the connection. Right. And... When, when Jesus is talking about that, like he's built in, in our ordinances, yep. the way to rehearse grace totally to your soul. Come on. And so, um, and, and in the juxtaposition, they're saying, you know, what, what do we need to do to, to do the works of God? And on the other end, Jesus is like, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Right. And what does the eat? Believe. Yep. Believe in the son of God. Totally. It's a foreign righteousness. That's not your righteousness. That's right. And that has to be the source of the strength to pursue holiness. Come on. Because it's, if it's not that, uh, then it just becomes a works-based righteousness, which isn't the gospel, which Paul is super salty about in yes. Galatians 3. Yes. He, he says, you know, it'd be one thing for people to be doing sort of uh, license and doing all of whatever that it is that they want to do. Right. And the hardest uh, rebuke that Paul gives, in my opinion, in the New Testament, somebody could you know prove me wrong, is towards legalism. Totally. And so because it stays hidden from you're able to hide it from uh, from what it means to be a true follower of Christ. Yep. And so you can just hang out in Christian spaces and not really understand what grace is and just be trying to put your best foot forward and, totally. you know, play in the face and, and do your thing. And so, man, God used suffering in that way. Yep. Me going to the counselor, preaching through Galatians, wrestling with this stuff, uh, struggling with some anxiety. Yep thinking of shame and my own shame and, and then realizing, man, like in order to minister to people's souls, Steve, you have to, you have to be able to minister grace. That's right. That's right. And so that was the thing that began to, uh, to get me going, man. So that, yeah, that was, that was the thing that, that started me on this journey of utilizing things, my culture and then the gospel just to minister grace to people. That's so good, man. All right. So I want to learn a little bit more about that, not only teaching, but particularly in a multi-ethnic context, this idea of reconciliation and how do we do that in the context of preaching and you kind of holding both these worlds in context as a teacher, as a practitioner. And I want to talk about that a little bit more coming up next on the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Brian Fromm is in sunny Florida. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. But, man, it has been such a joy to have Pastor Steve Koble, teaching pastor of Park Community Church, here in the studio. You can learn more at parkcommunity.church. And we've covered a lot of ground, man. We talked yeah, about man. your call to ministry and sort of the ups and downs of that. And then, like, your love and affection for, like, good biblical pastoral preaching. But you mentioned it a couple of times, though. You're, you're biracial. Yeah. And in your education, you, you kind of talked about, like, holding— like Charlie Dates in one hand and Tim Keller in the other, and yeah. like learning to balance these two sort of worlds, particularly as it comes to homiletics and preaching, which I, I find so fascinating. Can you take us a little deeper into that? Like what does is, what is multi-ethnic ministry in the city look like, and how have you grown and morphed and learned as you've engaged with this, even though it is sort of your life story in reality anyway? Like give us some context there. Yeah, man, that is, that's a, man, you're like the best question asker ever. Cause I'm <laughs> Thanks, like, man, man, there's so many layers to that. Like, I feel like I'm in a counseling session. <laughs> How does that make you feel? Steve? Man, Woo. Um, man, I, so I, yeah, I'm biracial, black. My mom is white. Uh, my dad is black and felt called to, to, to the ministry. And was like, where do I fit in in this? Right. And Got sort of got trained uh, first in the the African American church while going to school at uh, sort of traditional conservative Bible college, and uh, have been like towing the line of these two worlds. Mm. And Brian met Brian Laritz, so he's sort of informing kind of how I communicate and how to communicate in different audiences to different people, and um, and then just falling in love with God's word and 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 just it ministering to my soul and. I just, I, I'm not even, like, you have a natural gift of of talking. Oh, thanks, Like, you, the thanks. gift of gab, as uh, Dr. Waybright would say. It's a gift only sometimes. And, <laughs> man, I don't have that gift. Like, oh, come on. I, it has to be pulled out of me. No or way. it has to be, like, I have to prepare it. I yeah. don't believe it. It, it You're really doing great is, right man. Now. I'm pretty, pretty chill, like, low-key. <laughs> like, I'm not turned up all the time. <laughs> and, I, yeah, like, I'm I'm pretty, pretty laid-back kind of personality. And so... Like, you're just like, how does that fit in a preaching moment, in a preaching space, and even, like, the passion that comes in African-American preaching? And so oftentimes I would see my, my brothers and sisters uh, of the majority culture, man, really kill the the Lagos. And they, you know, have a passion for um, for explaining the Word of God, the details of the Word of God. And I, I think all of those things are excellent and magnificent. And uh, and then at the same time, they're trying to figure out, man, how do I become the next Tim Keller? Right. right. And I'm like, yo, Tim Keller has that's an anointing from God. We already have a Tim and, Keller. Yeah, right? we got one of those. <laughs> so, like, I'm going to just do what I do. And uh, in the process of figuring that out, man, I just became convinced that in order for me to be the best communicator, I needed to toe the line of all of these worlds together. And so. Man, I want to use word pictures in a in a way that stirs the imagination, and I, I want to utilize ethos in my own story, my personal experiences, so people can identify that. Man, I I'm not I don't got it all together, right? Like I'm not the like I'm up here not by, because I'm so awesome. I'm up here because of God's grace. Yes. And man, in the process of me actually being authentic with you, you like it allows you to actually believe the gospel. Like, man, I'm I'm not standing in my reputation. I'm standing in Christ's righteousness or I, I, there's a foreign righteousness that's been applied to my life. And yeah. um, and so I, I'm thinking through how to minister to people's souls in that. So that was a process for me. Um, I, I still love to hear uh, in the African-American tradition a good hoop. 
<laughs> where the, don't we where all, the preacher though. tunes don't we up all. <laughs> and um and somebody gets on the organ, man. So I just I just absolutely love it. Do you have you don't I have an it. organ at park, do you? We don't. We tried the keyboard uh version of the organ one time yeah. and I went there a little bit, but we didn't get the call and response thing didn't quite get, get there oh, for man. us. So we didn't we, we, we haven't quite figured that out yet. So so I grew up outside Detroit and so I, I've had a long affinity for the African American church, even though I I knew you know, I'm just the whitest dweeb around. I wore a fedora into the studio today. Like I get I get that about myself, but you it's I love hearing your story because you've had to wrestle with things and hold things in context that I've never even thought about. Mm. And I'm curious, because you mentioned that you, you preach in different locations and different contexts. Do you ever find yourself in an environment where you're like, man, I don't feel black enough or I feel too black or too whatever yeah, yeah, in yeah. this context that's outside of like my normal church rhythm? And how do you, how do you navigate that when you're like in, in the midst of given this task to communicate well? How, how do I fit in to the greater whole here? Man, it is an art. Um, there's plenty of times that I, you know, one of my friends came and heard me preach at Park probably a year and a half ago, and he said, yeah, you're not being yourself. Oh, really? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, there's like 30% more of you that you need to, like, unveil. And, and what did so, he mean by that? More of what part of you? What? I, I think he was saying, like, the 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 cultural personality, like, the your culture and your personality needs to come out some more hmm. and you've been withholding that um from uh the people who are listening to you and you need they need that they need you they need the truth through you through you as as god's instrument and so man wb du bois says something really interesting to me that uh black people live their lives behind the veil because they're afraid of rejection if they actually show you who they are hmm. and uh the souls of black folk is the book that he he wrote that in and i, I realized that there are certain versions of myself that i that I like expose to people and then certain things that I'm like, I don't know if they could handle all of that. Right. Interesting. And so Charlie dates asked me to come preach for him uh, a couple of years ago. And I went down and preached and the freedom that I felt to yeah. just go there was just like, Whoa, I didn't even know, like I'm shifting gears and, and doing things and things are extemporaneous. And I'm, uh, and thinking the, that and, in the moment, yeah, like, oh, in the moment it's like this jazz thing that's happening between audience yes. and preacher where the, preaching moment is dialogical and not mono, uh, not a monologue. And yeah. so it's just a different thing that's happening. And so I felt myself sort of expose all of me there. And yet I still have this unique two-ness that's in my personality. Yes. And so, um, man, that is just something that I've had to learn. And other people have had to help me say, Steve, you need to, you need to tune it back a little bit here or you need to, no, man, you need to bring out your whole self here. And so hopefully I've learned to bring out my whole self, at least in this, season of preaching ministry and stuff like that. And um, it's an art. And I think multi-ethnic stuff is uh, is an art because you're bridging different worlds together and communicating to different worlds. So I'm always trying to think of where can, where do we just all have common ground? Yeah. Uh, and in, yes. in, 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 in a lot of times, like, like I said, the, the use of story is a place that I think that that's just a part of the human experience. Right. So it just is what it is. And then I think that there's, you know, for for some African American preaching that that lends to just mostly passion without logos, but then there's great African American pre- preaching that has logos, pathos, and ethos, right. and then there's, uh, you know, there's there's majority culture preaching that's just logos, and and it's just like, yo, I I'm just gonna do all of that yes. and see what shakes out, oh, man. and hopefully, you know, uh, minister people's souls, and you know, Galatians five one after uh, Paul says, "You foolish Galatians." 
Well, uh, you, you began by the spirit, but now you're going to be perfected by the flesh. And then he says in Galatians 5, 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Mm. And so the gospel is like that space. It doesn't matter who you are, what right. ethnic background. We all come into this space where we have these burdens of performance and achievement and what we experience in society. And he's not talking about don't, you know, whether or not it's okay to drink a glass of wine right. at dinner. Right. He, he's saying, no, like Christ frees us from that. Like that righteous, that foreign righteousness gets applied to our account and all of that, uh, I think is just great preaching for anybody, man. Man, oh man. I'm so grateful for you and your work in the world, man. Thank you for taking the time to be with us on the show today. That's been Pastor Honor, Steve Coble, teaching pastor of Park Community Church. You can learn more at parkcommunity.church. And this has been The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.